Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. We maintain the peace through our strength. Weakness only invites aggression. Trust, but verify. Well, I've said it before, and I'll say it again. America's best days are yet to come. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. On this episode of Reaganism, we are joined by guest host Rachel Hoff, who leads the Reagan Institute Center for Freedom and Democracy. Our guest this week is Ellen Bork, who has worked for decades in the field of democracy and human rights. She is a member of the Board of Directors for the International Campaign for Tibet and for the Free Russia Foundation. Ellen served in the Reagan administration at the State Department during the 1980s and on the U.S. Senate Committee on Foreign Relations in the 1990s. Ellen is currently a contributing editor at American Purpose, where she writes about American foreign policy with a focus on Asia. If you enjoyed the conversation, remember to subscribe to Reaganism wherever you listen to podcasts and leave us a five-star review. Thanks for listening. Well, hello and welcome to Reaganism. I am your guest host, Rachel Hoff, and with me today, I'm so pleased to welcome... Ellen Bork, somebody who's dedicated her career to advancing two principles that are really core to President Reagan's legacy, uh, freedom and democracy. Ellen, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. That's very flattering. I, I, I do my best, and it's great to see you again after so long. Well, Ellen, I wonder if you could start by telling you about your own connection to President Reagan and to the Reagan administration. You served in the State Department uh, during the 1980s. Tell us about kind of your role there and how, how that came about. Sure. Um, as a matter of fact, I, I was working on a little project to support democracy in Central America that Max Singer, uh, who was a founder of the Hudson Institute, had uh, launched. And that led me into contact with a lot of people who were doing that issue at the State Department. Uh, eventually, I applied for a job, went to work for Otto Reich, and then ultimately for Elliot Abrams in the Public Affairs Office and uh, worked there for a couple of years. Um, and that was one of my most formative you know, career experiences working for Elliot. Um, one of the best bosses I've ever had among a number of great bosses. Um, and it was really in that way that, um, you know, I, I, I revere President Reagan. Um, he's just, you know, an extraordinary um, leader and example to all of us. But, you know, you have to remember the people who were carrying out the policies really had an enormous impact. And so I'd cite uh, Elliot and uh, George Schultz. Um, uh, as people who should, you know, Elliot's still living, George Schultz just passed away. Um, on the occasion of uh, Secretary Schultz's passing, I went back to read some of his memoirs and, and they're really wonderful. Uh, they tell a lot about a lot of examples of the Reagan era uh, where the United States pushed for democracy, um, withdrew support from dictators that had been uh, US allies. And it, when, the, when Reagan decided it was time to stop, um, and saw that shift that then unfolded, particularly in, in East Asia. Uh, it's really valuable to reread that. And then there's my favorite anecdote when, frankly, George Schultz was meeting with American businessmen in Beijing and uh, felt that he, they were uh, taking too close a line to the Chinese line in promoting their business interests. And reading that passage is, uh, unfortunately, sort of something that, that we still need to think about while we're balancing national security and other interests uh, with regard to China. Yeah, that's that's such a great lesson. So when, when you were at the State Department, were you in the Human Rights Bureau or in the Latin America Bureau with Elliot? I was in the Latin America Bureau, which at the time, yes, it has a different name now than it did at the time. Um, Elliot Abrams had been the Assistant Secretary for the International Organizations Bureau and also for Human Rights, the Human Rights Bureau, and came over. Uh, and I believe recruited Bob Kagan 
uh, to join him there. I mean, Bob was very much in the front office. And um, uh, I worked directly for a career diplomat named Bud Jacobs, who became who's a wonderful uh, person and a number of other career diplomats who who uh, it, it was a very engaging atmosphere. It was full of seriousness and optimism and a fair amount of humor. Um, and it was just a great environment to work in. Um, and I think it's where, to the extent that I, I mean, I, a lot of my ideas were shaped and there was a real rigor to the arguments and to the, you know, the carrying out the, the policies that were identified for us uh, to advance. So um, it was, I, I look back on that uh, you know, when you told me, when you invited me and I, I got very nostalgic because I tried to remind myself of things you forget about decades later. And uh, um, it, it really truly was a, a formative experience in my whole uh, well, thank, thanks for sharing. Very long. I was I was just twelve at the time. But. Yes, of course, of course. The, the that math has to work out. Um, well, I want to pull pull on several of those threads through our conversation today, Ellen, and and in particular, you know that that theme of optimism that that you mention um, a little bit later later in the discussion. But you bring up. Um, Folks like Elliot Abrams and Secretary Schultz, who were so much a part of President Reagan's legacy. Um, and in fact, your last name is probably familiar to several of our, or to many of our viewers. Um, your father, Judge Robert Bork, of course, an important part of President Reagan's uh, time in office as well. Tell us a bit about your father and how he came to be nominated by President Reagan, both for the D.C. Circuit Court and then later, of course, uh, nominated for the Supreme Court. Sure. Well, then I really was 12. Um, so, um, <laughs> Uh, my father was a law professor um, when I was a teenager. He came to Washington to be Solicitor General um, and um, was, you know, a, a legal uh, intellectual uh, with a lot of specialty in antitrust and, uh, but also constitutional law. Um, and that was, a, frankly, another formative experience for me growing up with someone who was a great writer and um, it really helped me with my writing uh, in a way that I, I like to think about. Um, and at a certain point, he was, uh, I think. It must have been around 1981. He, he, we were in New Haven. He was nominated to the circuit court. Uh, and then later, of course, he was nominated to the Supreme Court. And at that time, I was working for Elliot. And uh, um, uh, it was, you know, it was kind of, um, I, I'm sure there were other controversial nominations or policy issues, but it really did sort of take over Washington at the time. Um, and uh, I'm not sure what else to say, but um, you know, it didn't work out, but uh, I do remember that was probably the only time I met President Reagan. Um, he invited us over to the White House. Um, and uh, sometime later, I guess that was the, when my father gave a, a speech saying he would not withdraw his nomination. And then later, I guess it might have been the day that the vote was taken. I'm not sure. But President Reagan called my father at our house. Um, and in fact, Mrs. Reagan had been having surgery that day. So it was very generous and gracious thing to do, which of course he was known for. So, you know, I still remember all those days too. Yeah, certainly. Well, I've been thinking um, as, I, as I've prepared for our conversation today about how to describe uh, the work that you've done since that time to, to our viewers, since your own time in the Reagan State Department. Of course, you've done so many different and interesting things in the field, field of democracy and human rights, working at the State Department and also um, on Capitol Hill at the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. You've worked for nonprofits and NGOs like, like Freedom House and International Republican Institute. Uh, you're also a lawyer. You're an author. You're, you're a scholar. You and I know each other um, from our time working together at a small think tank called the Foreign Policy Initiative. Um, you're so many things, but I, the word that I settled on in, in terms of describe, describing the work that you've done is 
activist on behalf of freedom and democracy. I wonder if that's a, a word that you would associate yourself and your work with, or is there another way that you would describe it? I, I think that's fair. I guess I often think of that as, you know, people who, you know, we're so fortunate, um, despite our, our problems, you know, we have a democratic system. And so, uh, you know, there, there are plenty of activists in the United States. I guess I, I, I think of myself as a writer, but I'm certainly, um, you know, pressing for, for certain ideas and for certain priorities in our foreign policy. So I, I'm happy with that. Um, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, you know, it is so often a word that we use to describe, um, you know, activists and dissidents around the world who are fighting for these these uh, freedoms in their own countries. Talk a little bit about how this uh, these issues really came to to motivate you and animate your career, especially growing up in a country where we enjoy those freedoms here at home. And uh, in the case of many people, you know, so many take them for granted. How did how did you come to settle on kind of this work for for your career? That, that's an interesting question. I was definitely drawn to it. Um, it you know, I think as a sort of some, something about international affairs appealed to me. Um, I do think the experience I had working for Elliot Abrams and, and Secretary Schultz um, were, were major, um, but also the reading that I did. I, there was something about some of the memoirs that I read early on um, when uh, that uh, one, well, one of them was not a memoir. One of them was about Tibet uh, by John Avedon. It was about the you know, the invasion of Tibet, the flight of the Dalai Lama and that kind of thing. And that started a long-term interest in Tibet that I, I continue to have. Um, and other memoirs, uh, Nian Chung um, uh, wrote a, a memoir about uh, the culture, largely about her experience in the Cultural Revolution, I think, but um, forget the name of it. But a lot of memoirs of, she wasn't a dissident, in fact, but dissidents memoirs, um, I actually later uh, pulled together a class to, to sort of uh, to teach about dissidents' writings and how, sort of how dissidents play a role in our foreign policy. That was very important in the Reagan era. Um, President Reagan had, I think, a really instinctive uh, response to uh, to dissidents and made them a, a, a real priority in, particularly in policy toward the Soviet Union. There were lists. Um, and then, there, and of course, there were other allies in that regard as well. Senator uh, Henry Scoop Jackson, um, who, who uh, with uh, Charles Vanek, uh, drafted the Jackson-Vanek Amendment that was used in trade, legis in trade legislation to link free emigration uh, from non-market economies, but effectively communist regimes. And those were days, and, th and then later, that battle also took place with regard to uh, People's Republic of China, and that I, I was more involved in at the, in the late 90s on Capitol Hill. And again, you know, you, you be, the United States really focused on releases of individuals, um, recognizing what this, you know, what their own personal fates meant, but what it meant for the United States to um, apply its leadership and its leverage on behalf of people who are fighting for democracy and human rights. And I think um, that it's become sort of pervasive now. People know more about dissidents, but it's not so much the case that that policy grinds to a halt, you know, while we're, or maybe not a halt, but policy drives forward that goal. And I would like to see that a bit more, especially with regard to, frankly, to Hong Kong and Xinjiang and China right now. Mm -hmm. When you when you think back on on the work that you've done with with um, with citizens, especially you know, people advocating for their own freedom and human rights in other countries. Are there any, you know, kind of to make this relevant to to those of us that live in the, the U.S., are there any 
stories or anecdotes from your experience that jump out in terms of kind of putting into perspective the freedoms that we do enjoy here and, and the situations that so many around the world face in their countries? Well, I think both you and I uh, know some Russians that um, we were, you know, uh, uh, fortunate to meet and try to help um, reach audiences here. Um, Boris Nemtsov, who was assassinated, our friend Vladimir Karamorza, who I believe you've hosted. Um, uh, these are people, you know, in Nemtsov's case, who lost their his life. Um, so those those two are really important, and I think in that connection in particular, um, they were very effective in, or, or they were adamant at least in telling us not to keep talking about Russia as a monolith and, and, and everything Russia was doing uh, as, or everything Vladimir Putin was doing as synonymous with Russia and to make distinctions uh, between uh, Russians. And I think it's really true that the kind of dictators propaganda that, you know, people are perfectly happy if, as long as they have stability and some economic improvement in their lives, they're really okay with foregoing other, you know, freedoms. And um, I thought they were particularly effective at um, insisting that we not slip into that. And Vladimir in particular, not, not you know, catching me when I would say Russia did something or, no, it's, it's, a, it's Putin is, and his government is doing something and he does not speak for Russia when there is an invasion of Crimea, for example. And it takes a little bit of effort to even for people who work on this every day to, to be careful how we speak about this and um, we frankly respect the people who are um, taking such incredible risks um, for their own freedoms and their system of government. So I, I do try to remember that. Yeah, that's such a great lesson. Um, one last kind of general, you know, how, how you've said about your career question. You know, there's so many fields um, where the path is kind of clearly laid out for how to to move forward and advance law. If you if you had chosen to spend spend your career practicing law after law school, business certainly more of a career track field. This this world of human rights and democracy is is different. Um, even as a writer, I, I would say that's you know it's different. Kind of um, a lot more flexibility and agility is required. And I wonder even as I hear you talk about everything from. Russia to Tibet, and I want to talk about your work in Hong Kong next. Um, what's it like to work in a field where you know you kind of have to stay so agile, not just um, not just in terms of career path, but even at any given time, kind of uh, focusing on crises in in one part of the world, and then maybe the next month or or week or year in a in a different part of the world. Well, I, I guess you know I'd have kind of. Um in some ways I have a particular focus and certain issues have become ones that I've stuck with Hong Kong and Tibet and, and China and policy towards Asia. Um, but I think, you know, when you and I were colleagues at the foreign policy initiative, it was the mission of the group uh, to advance certain uh, values and, and approaches in foreign policy. And so, you know, you kind of would, uh, I, you know, I got very involved in Russia. I'm not a Russia scholar. Um, uh, and I respect those who are, but we were, you know, our, our goal was, you know, in a way, you know, bringing Russian voices, um, trying to influence uh, the way uh, policy was perceived or policy, American interests were perceived and what policies should be taken. So um, I guess I, you know, I, I, you settle into a few, I mean, I work quite a bit on Burma and these things unfortunately have, you know, come back. Um, you know, they're not 
not many of them have been settled and I haven't worked on a, a, a an issue really that has been, I suppose. So uh, I don't know. I guess I, I'm just groping for a way of saying um, because I work, I think of myself as working on American foreign policy with certain objectives and priorities in mind. And so I, I don't feel, I, I feel there's some consistency in that, in, in pushing for a certain kind of foreign policy. Right. Well, let's let's talk now about some of those those areas of the world where you've you've focused on. First, I'd, I'd love to start with with Hong Kong. Um, for our listeners, you know, they're they may have seen headlines in the last couple of years, or photos, images, or even footage from the the massive protests over the last uh, few years, in particular. But let's rewind a little bit and kind of tell us how we got here. You know, maybe even back to to 1997 with the the handover of Hong Kong from the UK to China. Um, you know, and everything that's happened since then. What what China? What uh, sorry? What promises did did China make, and and what's actually happened in terms of their their actions in Hong Kong? Well, it, it you know it started even before 1997 in, in 1984 when um, the United Kingdom and China agreed on the Sino-British Joint Declaration, and that agreement, which uh, transferred uh, Britain's colonies back to Chinese sovereignty also provided for something called the basic law, which was drafted by Beijing. And it's so it's often referred to in ways that, you know, I think, frankly, all of us look out at the world and try to make sense of things with reference to our own system or something, even when we're aware that there are differences. And so the basic law frequently gets described as a constitution. It's really not. Um, it was drafted by uh, Beijing's Communist Party uh, to, for certain reasons. It has some good language in it, but it can always be changed. And what we've discovered is that um, although uh, China agreed to leave Hong Kong alone for 50 years, which would be 2047, um, in response to um, the, the democracy movement um, in Hong Kong, they accelerated that pace and extended direct, really more or less direct rule. They still have cut out proxies, but uh, effectively last June. Um, I mean, th their control was always there. Uh, they had, in fact, used the basic law to reinterpret itself um, to intrude on certain discrete matters, but really as a wholesale matter of direct control that took place last summer with the imposition of this national security law. Um, I think its implementation has been more voracious and uh, uh, repressive than anybody thought it would be. Um, it is head spinning um, to watch uh, the dismant the, the number of civil society groups, political parties, and others that are dismantling themselves as you know in response to pressure. Uh, in the last couple of days, uh, two leading Democrats who are in jail, um, you know, helped to dismantle uh, the Hong Kong Alliance, which promoted the uh, used to hold the the Tiananmen uh, June Fourth commemorations that I think everybody around the world has seen. Uh, with you know hundreds of thousands, if not more, people holding you know candles on June fourth to commemorate the 1989 Tiananmen massacre, um, and it it's um, it's really almost too much to keep track of. It's more than a fire hose. So um, you know, I think it's personally, I I sometimes read um, that uh, the jury was out. You know, Hong Kong wasn't necessarily going to do this. There was a way that they were going to allow Hong Kong to evolve. I don't really think that's exactly true. Um, I think that a lot of the comments uh, made at the time by people like Deng Xiaoping suggested um, that there really was no meeting of the minds and what China meant by its promises never meant what Great Britain hoped they meant. 
And it's certainly clear that Great Britain has not been willing to uh, find a way to build pressure uh, as a party to this declaration, this treat, international treaty, which it is registered at the United Nations. They have not found a way to put pressure on China. They have not come to their allies and said, let's do this. Uh, instead, there's a strategy um, from the, Brit the, Brit uh, the British government, which is um, let's just keep saying that China's in breach of the joint declaration. And it becomes frankly meaningless because they're not saying they've broken this agreement. Here's what we're going to do. Here's what we've asked our friends to do. Uh, they just keep saying it's it there that China is in continuous breach of this without uh, a way forward. It's it's deeply distressing. And so frankly, is you know, the, the United States also had officials over decades saying, you know, we're going to stand up for Hong Kong. And uh, that's really not happening. The protests around around the national security law and and even the you know the broader kind of umbrella movement um, you know they've they've fallen out of headlines in in uh, in more recent times maybe because there's just so much else going on in the world from Afghanistan to the the ongoing covid pandemic what's what's going on in Hong Kong today what's the the current status kind of in terms of um, implementation of the national security law and the response to it by Hong Kongers? Um, well, it's, there's pretty much uh, no, there, there are no more street demonstrations. The COVID uh, react precautions pretty much stopped. The, the 2019 demonstrations that started in the summer of 2019 were in response to an extradition, a proposed extradition agreement. And it was a, uh, a year after that, uh, those protests launched that the national security law was imposed. Um, and then uh, the, the national security law um, uh, makes criminal effectively subversion, uh, terrorism, and foreign collusion. And you'll see that uh, prominent Hong Kong people like Jimmy Lai, the, the founder of Apple Daily, which was a major uh, publication, the only really daily pro-democracy Chinese language newspaper, um, that he is in jail. He's been convicted of some, uh, let's say, lesser offenses, charges related to demonstrations um, that were unauthorized. Um, and um, so he's serving, uh, I think, close to two years right now, but they have hanging over him are more serious charges of this under this national security law. Um, and I believe there's been one conviction so far of a national security uh, prosecution. I might be mistaken, but, um, so they're, they're, uh, they hold, they carry a potential life sentence. Um, others are, have been charged. I think that, that it's close to 125 or so, or 140 uh, arrests and charges under the national security law. Um, it has decimated, it's just completely destroyed the democracy movement. Um, they're all in jail or some of them have been able to leave. Very, I think very few of the most prominent have left. Uh, the most prominent are in jail or facing prosecution conceivably on bail. Bail is routinely denied. Um, Beijing has, it, it's an interesting story I, to, for someone to investigate the rapidity with which Hong Kong, which had previously a revered uh, legal system um, and rule of law, um, you know, with major democracy figures like Martin Lee as barristers, Margaret Ng, um, how they're, they're on the, the the lawyers, but the, the courts have really rapidly turned into, not all of them, but there's a national security apparatus now 
that handles this. And I encourage people to open up the Hong Kong Free Press online or the South China Morning Post, and you'll begin to see um, just really dreadful actions taken uh, restricting people's freedoms, but under the veneer of the rule of law with judges um, denying bail. Uh, there's a prominent Democrat uh, and journalist named Claudia Mo uh, who uh, had her bail denied because they she texted a foreign journalist. Um, incidentally, you should all, you know, I, I suspect a lot of your readers uh, read the Wall Street Journal editorial page. They do an extraordinary job of monitoring uh, what's happening in Hong Kong. Um, it is a vicious, ruthless crushing of ordinary people, you know, freedoms, and uh, it, it continues. So um, last June, for the second time in a row, the, the, the Tiananmen, the, the June 4th commemoration was banned. There, there are really no protests anymore. Um, it's just a constant, uh, I wouldn't say race, with great reluctance in the last couple of days the one of the the, pro, the only the major pro-democracy labor union began to disband. Um, it's the, the teachers have come under pressure. Um, anybody who social workers, anybody who appears to uh, have been positive about the protests or um, risks um, a national security prosecution. You paint you paint such a vivid picture of what that is like for the the kind of leaders of that movement and and Im- imprisonment and you know denial of bail and, and all of that. When you talk about, you know, teachers or, or labor union workers or, or social workers, you know, is that something, paint, could you paint a picture for us, I guess, of the life of an average citizen in Hong Kong right now who, who, who may be kind of freedom and democracy minded, but, but not one of the leaders of this movement compared with a few years ago before these laws and certainly, certainly before, uh, before Chinese control? Yeah. I just want to say, I don't even talk to friends in Hong Kong because it's too frightening for them. Uh, I've had a couple of friends politely send word or text me or send word. I can't talk to you anymore. That was especially after they started arresting, they arrested Jimmy Lai. Um, so I, I don't want to pretend that I'm, you know, it, it's, it's, it's even a, such a strange change that You'll you'll have an instinct to to call someone or you know think of something you know could I invite someone to appear on a panel and then you think no I can't it's it's that dangerous and it's so incongruous with the Hong Kong that we were all familiar with and frankly with modern life with international communication but that's the way it is so I don't want to suggest that I'm um, in any way you know have I'm the best source of, of information on this um, but I I really think. Um, they, they've been disqualifying uh, grassroots level, uh, you know, politicians. Well, everybody really, but I mean, um, people were forced to e- either take a, a patriotism oath or drop out of politics. Is really what's happening now. And they're they're now there's a uh, Hong Kong's legislature was already was only partially democratic anyway, and and the, the movement was trying to expand that. Now it's totally contracting, um, disqualification and jailing of uh, Democrats has happened on a massive scale. And now there's a new system in place. It's very complicated, which I think is kind of the reason, but to vet um, uh, potential candidates um, who I really think essentially some committee of Beijing tells the Hong Kong vetting committee what who to exclude, but it's it they, they talk about having a patriotism requirement. It's nothing like what your listeners think of when it comes to patriotism. 
it is loyalty to the Communist Party. And um, that in turn means, you know, no, no respect for the rule of law, no independent democratic freedoms or, or civil liberties and that kind of thing. So um, it's it's um, it's really quite hard for me to imagine what it's like there right now. Yeah. Well, I appreciate your caveat about, you know, maybe not having spoken to to friends in Hong Kong for quite some time, but that in itself demonstrates, you know, how much how much things have changed. I um, I visited Hong Kong only once in my life, and it was before 1997. I might have been 12, actually, to to our points earlier, um, and it's it, it is just unimaginable to, to think how how quickly things have changed. Let me. Let me ask one question. You talked earlier about kind of the British special responsibility that that um, they might be taking during this time to hold hold the Chinese Communist Party to account. Talk about what the U.S. role might be as well. We here at the Reagan Institute commission a public opinion poll every year um, to survey the views of the American people on a variety of defense and foreign policy issues. And our latest survey actually from earlier this year showed that uh, 70 74, I think, percent of Americans, three in four Americans, uh, think that the U.S. should be should be doing more to support the pro-democracy movement in Hong Kong, uh, even if it were to to anger China. Uh, it's hard to get three and four Americans to agree on on anything these days. So, how do you, you know, what would that look like? What what should or or even could the U.S. be doing to to support the people in Hong Kong? Um, well, it would it would be an, a a, a long term effort. Um, it would be not 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 confined to Hong Kong. I think what ha- what's happened is that China's become extremely powerful, in part because of uh, the United States and Western-led policies of engagement that overlooked uh, the longer-term agenda that the Chinese Communist Party has to marshal power uh, and um, assert it around the world. Um, so, I, you know, there. I think on a, a certain level, I would like to see. Um, the return of political prisoners to the top level of um, American diplomacy. I don't see that. Um, and I don't see why China would think we were serious if we didn't do it in a prominent, public, confident, serious way. Um, and so I'd, I'd like to see that. I'd like to see that. I think it makes perfect sense to do that in conjunction with an Olympics position. Mm-hmm. which is I personally favor relocating the Olympics. Uh, I certainly don't see how the United States and other democracies could attend or send their, should send their athletes there um, while such crackdowns are going on in Xinjiang and Hong Kong. So that, um, let me let me pick up on that. So not you would advocate not just for kind of a U.S. boycott that some are calling for, but, but that the IOC itself, the International Olympic Committee itself, yes. relocate the games. Yes, absolutely. Um, and... Uh, that would that would be a, a really good step. I'm not I'm not uh, imagining that the IOC is is eager to do that. Um, uh, but I think relocation is the most principled position that could be taken. Randy Shriver, who's a, a former defense uh, uh, former official in both things, defense and state, really uh, recently wrote a piece about how Japan could host uh, uh, the, the Winter Olympics uh, very well, but so could Canada. You know, there, there are a lot of ways to deal with this. But in any case, um, you know, I, I, at this point, it would have to be postponing and, you know, and relocating them. I think you'd, you'd have to postpone them to do that. Um, but yes, in any case, I, I'd love to see um, any any Olympics that went forward in Beijing 
uh, tied to uh, political prisoner releases, not to mention, you know, black, you know, stopping prosecutions uh, in Hong Kong and, and other uh, steps back from, from repression in, in Xinjiang, for example. Um, and uh, yeah, so those, those are certain things. I mean, I think on the, on the, um, the United States used to pretty publicly say, you know, the joint declaration isn't, isn't, we're not a party to it. And when I worked on the Hill in the nineties, that was, that was the position. And it was a terrible signal to send Beijing. You know, we, we're not a party. We shouldn't really be interpreting whether China's done this or that uh, is a violation. And I think in fact, uh, that was um, really self-serving and a big mistake. Um, and, but now it would really require, um, I mean, the G7 talks about Hong Kong when they meet, but they don't really do anything. Um, the United States has sanctioned some uh, Chinese and Hong Kong officials, and that's all to the good. It would be terrible if we didn't, but it's only a starting point for um, coordinated responses um, that deal with repression in Hong Kong, but also really begin to go, get at Chinese uh, disregard for universal values and their their growing ability to use economic and military coercion against uh, democracies, including Taiwan. All right. Well, um, Ellen, I know you've you've spent a lot of time um, in your career as well working on issues related to Tibet, and I think probably when when most Americans think of Tibet, they they think first of His Holiness the Dalai Lama. Um, they probably conceive of of Tibet as and the issues kind of surrounding Tibet as religious freedom issues, broader human rights issues, a territorial dispute. Mm-hmm. Um, but you've done a lot of thinking and writing lately that positions Tibet. Uh, also, in addition to those important uh, aspects, as a strategic issue, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure, and that I think is kind of a, I mean, a, you know, a Reaganite approach, which is that democracy and human rights are stri- strategic in, in a certain sense. They're not discrete uh, issues to be uh, handled, or and religious freedom to be handled separately. So, um, yes, I began to wonder, you know, why the United States had its position or, or how, how it came about. Um, and I just found sort of the history of it very interesting. And then I was also, and well, I'll I mention that, and then I'll say, talk about another aspect that I, I thought was really led me to want to talk about Tibet in slightly different terms than it usually is. Um, essentially, the United States, you know, historically favored Chinese, uh, China's territorial integrity. Um, then later, um, you know, we were allies during World War II with Chiang Kai-shek, and we really, the United States didn't have a huge relationship or, you know, presence or, or approach to Tibet. Uh, it got a little bit more so during World War II. There was this sort of effort to think about Tibet as a, as a point of uh, resupply uh, for uh, Chiang's troops. In any case, what's, what's interesting is that, um, you know, the Tibet asserted its independence. It was not recognized around the world, but after the last Chinese dynasty fell, um, Chiang Kai-shek, our ally, uh, that was in 1911, Chiang Kai-shek, our ally, uh, wanted to recover lost imperial domains, which, you know, the uh, China had lost so much of its imperial territory. Um, and the United States didn't really want to um, undermine him. And so they kind of um, accepted that. Uh, but no one really thought that Tibet was anything other than de facto independent or that really China was actually exerting authority there. Nonetheless, we had a close relationship with Chiang Kai-shek um, until we broke relations with Chiang Kai-shek, um, who had by then retreated to Taiwan. Um, and at a certain point uh, around 1978, 79, when 
the Carter administration um, had its rapprochement with that Nixon started with uh, Beijing. Um, essentially, we kind of transferred our deference to China from uh, uh, Chiang Kai-shek and the Republic of China, which never exerted control there, to the People's Republic of China, which invaded it. And so I just thought this was really very strange. And I started, I, so that is a historical matter. I thought that was important because it was such a contrast with the way the United States looked at the Baltic states, um, which were, now, and there are differences. The Baltics had different recognized, internationally recognized governments and so forth when the Soviet Union annexed them. But nevertheless, there's a case of communist aggression um, that in one case, the United States, even though there wasn't a whole lot we could do about it, just sort of refused to, to accept it. And the same was not the case uh, with regard to Tibet. So that interested me. Um, and then later, as I, you know, you're quite right that, you know, everyone thinks of His Holiness the Dalai Lama and he's done, he's, you know, become a kind of global figure of, of morality, of compassion and ethics. Um, he also led a democratic transition of his government, which was a theocracy. Um, and that he, you know, he, as a, a young man, he, he left Tibet, forced out of Tibet in 1959. Uh, the Indian government has generously um, uh, extended him and Tibetan refugees their hospitality all this time. And um, in addition to preserving the integrity of Tibetan Buddhism and cultural institutions that, that, that they've recreated in, in India, uh, His Holiness um, led, uh, you know, pushed and led a democratic transition. So there is now an elected, um, for lack of a better word, I'll call him the prime minister. It's really more of a chief of cabinet and a, uh, uh, parliament and they have limited they don't have sovereignty they have limited jurisdiction but it's a very meaningful example uh and he himself will joke that he's you know he he, he calls himself a hypocrite when he was a theocrat because he truly but he, he 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 became a committed democrat um and those are things that i think people it's easy here for us to overlook them it's not something to be honest with you that the um Chinese dissidents admire what the Tibetans have done in exile. Um, and although Tibet is treated as a matter of intense nationalism, and I don't want to diminish that in any way, um, some Chinese dissidents like to think about Tibet as a, a, a matter of, of sovereignty, of the democratic legitimacy, I should say, not sovereignty, but um, and they, they really quite admire what the Tibetans have done in exile. and. They don't think that Tibet can be solved as an issue within China until there's an entirely different democratic system in place. Um, so that, just these sorts of issues make me think of, uh, this is not just a question of, can we persuade the Chinese Communist Party to be more gentle? Um, it's that the invasion of Tibet was done by Mao for strategic reasons. They're pressing around the periphery uh, pursuing interests with regard to Tibet in Nepal and Bhutan and, and, and trying to in India. India is much stronger and able to withstand more of that. Um, China has a plan to install an imposter Dalai Lama. And um, that may seem like a sort of esoteric uh, issue, but it's really not. Um, they will, once having done that, they, they will add, demand deference to that figure. And it's it's a it's, they seek, the Chinese Communist Party seeks to be given greater acceptance and authority in more and more realms, uh, not just but in the realm of values and frankly, in the realm of religion. It's something that is a, a matter of, of uh, urgency in my view. 
So I want you to expand a little bit on that, that last point when you talk about the Chinese installing um, a different Dalai Lama. Talk to us about what, what happens when, when the Dalai Lama, um, His Holiness, passes on. The Tibetan Buddhists would, would have their own uh, effort to, to identify the next reincarnation of the Dalai Lama, and the Chinese would have a separate person that they would pick? Exactly. Um, uh, China, I, it, you know, the Chinese Communist Party is in many ways trying to recover a, a sense, it, not literally an empire of, or an emperor, but recover a sense of imperial grandeur and reach and status. Um, and it's historically very interesting and complicated, but uh, at what they, they, they claim an, an imperial basis for the right to choose a Dalai Lama, but they're not just doing that. They're also adopting guidelines in their religious affairs departments and things like that. And, um, but yes, that's exa exactly as you say, um, China wants to appoint an imposter and his holiness rejects any Chinese role for this um, and has his own issued a memo, I think in 2011, um, has some, you know, this, it, I, I, I can't go very far into the realm of what, what fits within Buddhist practice. Um, but I, but there are competing, I shouldn't say competing, there's an authentic, uh, uh, approach by His Holiness the Dalai Lama and what he plans to do and what is consistent with Buddhist tenets. And then there's what the Communist Party plans to do for its own reasons. At the Reagan Institute, we launched our, our new Center for Freedom and Democracy about a year ago and, and have a number of projects um, to reinvigorate and, and keep the focus on, on championing this work around the world as well. Um, as we close, let me turn to our, our lightning round that we ask each guest at the end of our podcast conversations. Ellen, your favorite Reagan quote, Reagan speech, book about Reagan, one, two, or all three? Well, I like, look, I, I don't know if everybody brings it up, but you know you know what he said when one of his aides said, uh, Mr. President, what's your approach to the Cold War? He said, we win, they lose. I don't know. That's That's the one I like. That's good. It, it certainly, you know, brings the the clarity, the the moral clarity, the ideological clarity, and and relevant to today's world and everything that we've we've spoken about today. So a, a fitting place to end. And Ellen, thank you so much for for being with us today. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you. <laughs>